Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweiback. Thank you so much for joining me. My guest today is Jeremy Ben-Ami, the president of J Street. I'm going to talk to him about the new unity government in Israel, the Trump peace plan, the BDS movement, differences between J Street and APAC, and we're also going to learn about Jeremy's father, Yitzhak Ben-Ami of Blessed Memory, who stood to the political right of Jeremy. We'll learn about ways in which he disagreed with his father politically, and also about their deep love for one another. Stay tuned and be inspired. First of all, I'd just love to hear a little bit about your background. Your father was born in pre-state Israel and then came to the United States. Just tell me a little bit about your Jewish upbringing and what that was like in terms of you know, your Zionist impulses that, that came probably from your family, I'm assuming. Great. Well, you know, it's a, a, a good and a long story. So it's a good thing it's a podcast and not a very short uh, soundbite interview. Uh, the fact I love to tell my kids is that my father's birth certificate actually was from the Ottoman Empire. Uh, he was born in Palestine while it was still under Ottoman jurisdiction pre-World War I. Uh, so he grew up in uh, uh, then the British mandate period uh, and referred to himself as a Palestinian Jew. Uh, so I always enjoy that for those who say there's no such thing as a Palestinian. I say, well, there's my dad uh, who was a Palestinian Jew. Uh, and uh, his family actually came to Palestine in the 1880s. Uh, they were part of the first Aliyah and were one of the settling and founding families of Pedach Tikva, and uh, that was 1882. So my family's been in uh, Palestine and Israel now for almost 140 years, and his parents were one of the founders of Tel Aviv. Uh, he was in the Irgun, uh, very involved in uh, both the freedom fighting in Palestine, but also in the rescue efforts for uh, Jews out of Europe that the uh, Irgun was running as early as 1938 and 39. And so his uh, involvement in all of these issues was a, a real touchstone of my youth. Uh, you know, I grew up in New York City and he had had this incredible, uh, you know, first half of his life that had been all devoted to uh, the state the founding of the state, uh, the rescue of Jews, and uh, everything that he did in the second half of his life was, was really a reflection back on that first half of his life. And so I grew up with this as the, you know, the pulse of the house uh, was driven by uh, issues related to Israel. And, uh, you know, his mood would swing uh, based on what was happening there and whether it was 1967 or 1973 um, or, you know, 19- 77 when Begin won. Begin and he were very close friends. And so Begin winning was a huge, uh, you know, it was a mahapach, you know, it was a revolution. And uh, uh, then, uh, you know, Sinai came along and Begin gave away Sinai and my father never spoke to Begin again uh, because he thought, how could you possibly, uh, you know, be turned traitor against uh, the right wing on this and give away land for peace. And uh, so that was the kind of household that I grew up in. I ended up uh, marrying uh, a woman whose family was also one of the 17 founding families of Pedach Tikva. So I, uh, you know, give to my kids an honest uh, legacy 
of uh, true Zionism, you know, from the earliest uh, days. And sadly, my father-in-law just passed away last week, uh, and he was a cantor. Uh, and he was the cantor in New York City who bar mitzvahed me. Uh, he not only bar mitzvahed me, he then performed my wedding to his daughter. Uh, and then he trained both of my kids for their b'nai mitzvah. Uh, and so he learned his, uh, you know, his religion and his tradition uh, as, you know, an Orthodox Jew uh, growing up in Pesach Tikva. And so this is, you know, very much a part of my, my story. And so I come to J Street, uh, you know, very much from a place of uh, love and connection and caring and concern and worry <laughs> about, uh, and ajita, uh, about the state of Israel and its future and, and its present and, and where it's heading. Uh, and J Street is a, uh, an organization that, um, you know, provides a home, I think, for many Jews who live in the United States, and I find that this is true all over the world, um, who share a very deep connection to the state of Israel, uh, but are in deep, deep uh, opposition uh, to the direction in which the country is being led uh, and the politics that drive it. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the backstory. Well, first of all, my condolences uh, on, on the loss of your father-in-law. Um, it's a beautiful story, the connections, and uh, to have him be there for your both your bar mitzvah and then your wedding, and uh, and for your kids, uh, b'nai mitzvah is just really special and gorgeous. Um, given some of the challenges that we Jews have in talking about Israel and the ways that we disagree with each other about Israel. Um, what was it like, I'm curious, with either your, your dad or your father-in-law or other family members um, who might look at some of your positions that you've taken or some of the positions that J Street's taken and said, hey, wait a second, son, you know, I disagree with you on that. Or, um, you know, because you shared uh, the story about your, your dad and Ben-Gurion, um, what, what are some of those kinds of uh, conversations like as, as a family? Well, it's tough. Uh, you know, my father, unfortunately, uh, passed away many, many years ago. So, uh, you know, we did not have the chance to engage uh, intellectually in these issues and, and politically uh, in a meaningful manner uh, during his lifetime. Um, what I've done on my bookshelf here in my uh, basement office uh, is I have my book sitting next to his book, uh, on the shelf so they can argue uh, with each other. But uh, it would have been interesting uh, to see what he would have done uh, you know, with me. I know that uh, there are many people who are on the right politically in the American Jewish community who actually still remember him. And uh, he was the president of Friends of Heirut. Uh, he had a radio show called The Voice of Heirut. Uh, you know, as I said, he was you know, to the right of, of Begin uh, but, you know, looked up to by a lot of folks who now live on the West Bank and who are at the heart of the settlement movement. And, uh, you know, they are very, very caustic and, and mean, personally, uh, to me. You can just check my Twitter feed at some, you know, some point uh, to see some of the things that are said by people who knew my dad and say that what I, you know, what I'm doing is such a, uh, you know, a, a treasonous thing. But, you know, I, I know that uh, I have large swaths of my family uh, it's a huge family in Israel, 500 or more now cousins on our family tree. Huge swaths of the family agree uh, with what I stand for, and huge swaths don't agree. And that's what, you know, a Jewish family is like. And uh, it is uh, all in the best of intentions. Uh, for those who are to my right in my family, I know 
that they do it not out of some evil um, you know, beliefs and something wrong. Uh, they do it because they think it's best for them and their family and for Israel. And I think they think the same of me, even though they think I'm wrong and I think they're wrong. Um, and that's where I wish political argumentation could be. Uh, but when you are led by somebody like Donald Trump, uh, you know, when you have uh, people like Netanyahu and, and his son and, and other political figures who uh, just have poisoned uh, the political discourse of the day, way too much of the argumentation uh, is done at a personal level uh, and is not useful. Uh, you know, what we should be discussing is whether or not the views that we have make sense, whether they're right, whether they're fact-based, whether they are the best uh, for the future. And that's just unfortunately not, you know, what happens with too many folks. Well, one of the things that um, that I love about our tradition is that, you know, we have this notion of machloket, of, uh, of disagreement uh, and division that can be l'shem shemaim for the sake of heaven. Um, and there are certain, according to our tradition, there are certain things that we could fight about that really are examples of that, of a, of a machloket l'shem shemaim. And then other things that just go into the category of shtut, you know, ridiculousness, like why are we even fighting about this? But th this kind of dialogue and this kind of fight to me feels so desperately one that is l'shem shemaim. We're talking about the shared destiny of the Jewish people. We're talking about um, issues of democracy and human rights and the Jewish character of the state of Israel and how these things come together and how they're in tension. Um, as I think about how you can have these kinds of machlokot l'shem shemaim, one of the things I try to practice is I, I try to think about the person whom I am in opposition with, and I try to think about, well, what's something I appreciate about that person or what's something that I can um, that I can support about that person, which doesn't mean that uh, that all of those other things don't still uh, irritate me, um, you know, annoy me, make me want to tear my hair out. Um, when you think about Prime Minister Netanyahu, who um, has survived another election and is now part of a, a new government, um, are there some things that you appreciate about his leadership or some things that, and I'm sure you've had opportunity over the years to speak with him, um, what, what are some things that, that in that spirit of machloket l'shem shamayim, what are some things that you either esteem about him or uh, would praise about him? Well, I think that's a really important uh... Uh, way to look at things. And I think it's also important to remember that um, for thousands of years, uh, the Jewish people have had fundamental arguments. Uh, this is not something new, uh, you know, and, and at every stage of Jewish history, we've had um, very, very serious divisions over meaningful issues uh, over the course of the entirety of the history of the Jewish people. Uh, and it's not our first rodeo, you know, it's not the first time around this. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying. And I think it is so important to look at the, the other and find the positive. I think it's true, not just, you know, if I were to look at Prime Minister Netanyahu, but I'd ask people on the political right uh, to look at Palestinians, uh, you know, and think about uh, their humanity. Uh, you know, one of the things that strikes me in, in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, is the inability of folks on the edges of both of those communities to see the other as human beings uh, and to find that humanity. Uh, because there's so many similarities between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, you know, and they both had incredible suffering and they both have this sense of victimhood and they've both been ignored by the international community at key moments. There's just so much that they have in common and a, a value of 
education and a desire to ensure their kids a good future, you know, there's just so much more in common. So when I think about the prime minister, um, who, by the way, um, his father and my father were very close friends, of course. And uh, so when I grew up, uh, we actually did have meaningful interaction with the family. And so, you know, I have positive memories of that. Uh, and, um, you know, I also think that the, uh, you know, Nobel Committee, if they awarded a Nobel Prize for politics, uh, I would nominate Netanyahu to get the Nobel Prize in politics. I think that he's an incredible politician and he manages to survive for himself, but he manages also to govern and to balance uh, different competing factions and different interests. And somehow he, he stays there. Uh, and it's so far to this point always been in line with the democratic process, right? You know, he's never uh, taken unto himself powers that were not delegated by uh, the laws of the state of Israel in order to maintain power. He's done it democratically, whether we like it or not. Uh, and so I, I really respect that. Uh, it, it requires real skill. Um, I also think that he has at times actually been a moderating force uh, within his own party, um, within his own faction, within the right wing. Um, I think we probably would have seen a lot more war and bloodshed uh, with another leader from the right over the course of the last decade and a half. And I think that he's made every effort to avoid uh, conflict and to minimize it when it took place, um, strangely enough, uh, for those who think he's a, a war criminal and, you know, a, um, a militant uh, right winger, I think he actually has shown restraint uh, in the use of force at times. And so, um, you know, I think that's an interesting characteristic of him. Um, and I give him credit for that. Um, so, yeah, no, I see some positives, um, that, you know, that is completely outweighed uh, by other attributes that I see that I don't think are so positive, but you've asked me for the positive, so I gave them to you. Thank you. Thank you. I, th I think uh, it's so important to find ways to do that. And I hope that those who might criticize you on Twitter um, or vilify a position that you might take would also pause and say, what are some things that I really appreciate about Jeremy's leadership and about uh, J Street, even if someone's not a supporter, you know, what are some things that you could look at and say, wow, I really appreciate this voice. And similarly with, with APAC, and obviously there's going to be some folks that we'd say, okay, that's beyond the pale. That's, that's on the other side of, of a red line that I've created for myself, and I'm not going to find something praiseworthy about you know, this person. But um, to me, those are sort of the extreme examples and the reality of our world, my, my view of our world is that uh, most people are fundamentally decent and we can find things that we can approve of and uh, support in others. And what I'm trying to do in terms of my own leadership at the temple is try to find opportunities for us to have these conversations civilly, with love, with a sense of uh, shared destiny and shared history. And, and we might at times say, my goodness, Jeremy, I couldn't disagree with you more. And I think that that particular posture is dangerous to the Jewish people and do so lovingly, just like we would with, uh, with the family members that we are. And the image of your dad and um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's father, you know, speaking with each other and their friendship and then um, you knowing him, um, you know, in childhood, to me, that's, that's beautiful. But how do we find ways to um, embrace that and see that as, as, as beautiful, as a beautiful part of this whole conversation, as opposed to the way we vilify each other? And that's something that 
in, in the coarseness of the the dialogue and debate and it's not just you know uh, in the last year or years it feels to me like it's been um, going on for quite some time is so troubling one uh, of course important development over the last couple of months is this unity government uh, in Israel and I'm interested in some of your thoughts about that I'm sure they're evolving as as this government um, you know it's only recently really formed what are some of your thoughts about what might be possible um, through this partnership between uh, Netanyahu and Gantz and um, what are what are some things that maybe concern you about the unity government so you know I think that the fundamental issue that's on the table for the state of Israel and its future and really I think it's going to have a big impact on the Jewish people as a whole uh, is the question of whether or not the state of Israel is going to annex uh, the land uh, some of the land uh, over the green line uh, that was won in 1967 and so the question of annexation I think is um, the biggest question in the months ahead uh, for this government and for the, the Jewish people um, I'm very very concerned uh, that and, and I'm not alone in this, you know, this is a concern that the uh, overwhelming majority of the retired leadership of Israel Security Services has tried to trumpet from the rooftops uh, the concern that annexing the land starts a, a chain of events, sort of a domino effect uh, that ultimately results in uh, Israel losing uh, a core part of its character and democracy and undermining its security for the long run. Uh, because if Israel takes uh, over and annexes uh, part of the land on the West Bank, and that leads to violence, and it leads to a collapse of the Palestinian Authority, and it leads to the potential breaking of the peace treaty with, with Jordan, and, and the Israeli defense forces have to really fully reoccupy all of the West Bank and all of the occupied territories, then Israel as a country will be the sovereign, the sole sovereign of a single country between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea in which Jews are a minority. Uh, and the fundamental question for that country will be, are you still a democracy and, and do the majority of the people that live there get to vote and control it? Or are you gonna be a minority ruling over a majority that doesn't have political rights? Um, and that's where the cascade of dominoes leads you in a number of years if, if you know, we go down this road. And so I see this as such a fundamental uh, and existential question. And I don't think it's regarded that way seriously enough in uh, Jewish communal spaces in this country. I don't think we're really adequately considering what the military and security professionals in Israel are telling us uh, as to what the consequences of this action are. Um, and it's an American political question because the coalition agreement between Gantz and Netanyahu says that annexation can only proceed if the United States approves. Uh, and so we actually have a role here, right? Normally people say, what right do you have as Americans to weigh in on these uh, questions? Well, the Israeli government gave us the, uh, you know, the blessing here. They said you need U.S. approval to move ahead with this. And so we as the United States, I think, have a obligation if we are truly friends of Israel, um, you know, to, to engage in this critical moment. And so I see that as the most significant issue for this new government. Um, and I just don't know uh, whether or not Benny Gantz and Gabi Ashkenazi and the folks who came over from the Blue and White Party 
Um, you know, whether or not they signed a really raw deal, uh, you know, did, did they in fact uh, sign away their ability uh, to veto uh, that kind of a move to have an influence on it um, and just essentially handed the keys to the kingdom uh, to, to BB and the settlers for the next 18 months so they can try to take advantage of this Trump window of opportunity to annex. So the Trump administration has a peace plan um, and uh, I know J Street has has responded to that, but for anybody who's listening who hasn't had a chance to maybe read some of what you've already written about it or some of what J Street has said about it, can you help us understand the way you personally and, and the organization that you're the president of responds to uh, to the peace plan? Sure. Well, I mean, the first thing that, you know, is a big uh, deal for us is, is whether or not it actually should be given the benefit of being called a peace plan, uh, because actually a peace plan in historic and diplomatic, you know, meaning uh, is a document and a roadmap that leads you towards the end of a conflict, um, you know, that actually lays out ideas and steps that could bring two parties in conflict to a resolution of that conflict. Um, that is not the document that was put out by the Trump administration. The, the document that was put out, I think it's much better described as essentially the terms of surrender uh, for the Palestinian people. Um, you know, it is not a compromise uh, that says, you know, this side will get something, this side will get the other thing, and, you know, we'll find a way to make our, uh, our way towards compromise and an agreed upon resolution. Um, and, you know, I think it really is a, we, we call it a peace sham, not a peace plan. Uh, it's a peace plan masquerade, it's a, it's a document masquerading as a peace plan. Um, what it did do uh, is it laid out a map. Uh, that essentially becomes the blueprint for annexation. Uh, it is, um, you know, the 70-30 split of the West Bank that is proposed in the Trump vision um, is the map that David Friedman and Ron Dermer are leading a commission right now to finalize. And it's on the basis of that map that Israel will then extend its, its sovereignty and annex the territory. So what it becomes, you can disregard the hundred and something pages of all the stuff that's never going to happen, because the only thing that's actually going to happen uh, is that Israel will use the map that was in this document as a green light uh, to move ahead with annexation. And so I think it is, uh, uh, you know, a mistake uh, to label it a peace plan. I think people should understand what it really is, and it's a roadmap to annexation. It's a document that if the Palestinians were to agree to it, they would be agreeing to having a sea of islands of sovereignty, um, little disconnected communities with the occasional road uh, connecting, um, you know, that is nowhere under anybody's conceivable definition of a state. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like the homelands in South Africa, the Bantustans back in the 1970s and 80s that the Republic of South Africa tried to uh, sell to the rest of the world as giving rights uh, to the black people who lived in South Africa by creating these little homelands for them. And that's pretty much what this is. It's not a state and it's not a two-state solution and it's not a peace plan, uh, but it's a roadmap for annexation. So um, when you think about some of the things that we're currently, you know, dealing with in terms of the global pandemic, um, I've been talking to 
friends uh, uh, in Israel and hearing about some of the reopening that's already happening. And they're ahead of at least where I am in LA. And I'm assuming where you are on the East Coast as well in terms of getting people back to restaurants and getting schools back open. Um, are there some some things that, that have been surprising or inspiring or somewhat uh, hopeful about what you've seen in uh, Israel and in, in the West Bank and Gaza um, surrounding responses to the pandemic? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that is uh, important in these discussions is that even as people like myself and organizations like J Street um, that are critical of the policies of the government when it comes to uh, the Palestinian conflict, when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to the Iran nuclear agreement, there are a whole series of things that we can fight about. Uh, but it's really important to recognize the things that go well. Uh, you know, and it's really important to recognize the strengths of a country. And I think one of the things that Israel uh, does do extraordinarily well, uh, you know, is 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 health. Uh, and uh, you know, it is it is absolutely amazing to see uh, how effective the country was at containing the virus and at treating uh, the folks who got ill. They had such a low rate uh, of death out of the people who were infected. They had a real containment strategy. Uh, people listened when they were told uh, to stay at home. Uh, you know, you didn't have wild pool parties and you had a, the occasional wedding or, or funeral here and there, but that was, you know, very much the exception. Um, and the society followed the rules. Uh, the professionals did their job. The public health, you know, sector worked. Uh, and now they're on the front lines of creating, hopefully, not only a vaccine, but potentially, uh, you know, also some some therapies that may ease uh, those who do uh, come down with the virus. So there's a lot to celebrate in the way that Israel handles something like this and to recognize the strengths of its society, uh, even as, of course, there are things going on there politically that one can disagree with. Yeah, it's been amazing um, to hear about the degree to which Israelis have followed the rules, because as you and I both know, um, not typically known as the greatest rule followers in certain areas, but so beautiful to see the way this has been happening uh, in this regard. Um, you, know, you talked about uh, a vaccine and, and obviously Israel's known for, in terms of biomedical and, and high tech, um, such a leader. Um, and I've seen some things that people have sent around that uh, I, mean, I understand the political uh, lens through which is this is coming, but the, the essential message is, you know, if Israel comes up with a vaccine to COVID-19, will those who are part of the BDS movement um, want to uh, enjoy the, the protective benefits of such a vaccine, or would they actually boycott an Israeli vaccine? Um, and so in terms of the BDS movement uh, and the ways in which um, J Street has um, interacted with, with that and sort of the current state of uh, what's happening with BDS on the college campuses. Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on, uh, you know, on the legitimacy of, of that approach uh, in trying to um, change policies in Israel that um, one might think you know, fundamentally are um, existential mistakes for the state of Israel. You know, if one really believes that, then, then could you justify um, anything within that movement? So what, what's your take on, on those particular tools um, as, as ways of trying to influence policy? Great, and, and such an important question. And the answer that J Street has is 
nuanced. And I think that our answers to many questions are nuanced. And that's sometimes not appreciated in a world of, you know, 280 character tweets. And, uh, you know, the, the state of play of our dialogue at the moment doesn't favor uh, nuance. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it's important that J Street state what it disagrees with, with those to our right, and that we state what we disagree with to those to our left. Uh, and to our right, I see a lot of folks who don't recognize the inherent right of the Palestinian people uh, to their national uh, statehood and their homeland and, and to independence and freedom. Uh, and I see a lot of people on the left who don't recognize the same thing for the Jewish people. Uh, you know, the, the Jewish people too uh, have inherent national right to self-determination. Uh, and that right to self-determination does in fact belong in the land of Israel, right? That's where the Jewish people are from thousands of years ago. And so people to the left often don't recognize that. And uh, I have a problem with that. And I have a problem with those on the right who don't think the Palestinian people do too. And I think in the BDS movement uh, is an umbrella that sometimes incorporates people of very different political flavors. Uh, you know, you have the global BDS movement, the founders of the BDS movement, who are Palestinian nationalists, right? And they don't want two states. They want one state. They want it from the river to the sea uh, and to be a Palestinian state. They're sort of the bookend of the far right in Israel that wants river to the sea, one state, but just for them. Uh, and I'm just as opposed to both of those. And the global BDS movement um, does not recognize Israel's right to exist. Uh, it doesn't support a two-state solution, and it doesn't recognize any difference uh, in its toolkit when it comes to occupied territory or to the state of Israel proper. So for all those reasons, J Street is opposed to the global BDS movement. However, uh, we also recognize uh, that in the United States, there's a First Amendment right uh, to economic activity as political speech which is protected by the Constitution. So if you choose as an individual not to buy a product from Israel, um, there should not be a law penalizing you, right? That's your protected First Amendment speech. Those cases are in court right now. Most of the decisions are, in fact, recognizing that. It's pretty established constitutional law. And J Street's actually filed an amicus brief and you know, is very supportive of the right of the people we disagree with to their First Amendment uh, rights. And so we support the right to boycott. We oppose the global BDS movement. Uh, and we do think that perhaps there are some economic tools in the toolkit uh, when it comes to the settlements, when it comes to occupation. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, when, when a product is imported that comes from a settlement, uh, the rule in the United States, according to the Treasury Department, uh, is that that cannot be labeled as a made in Israel product. But many factories on the West Bank do, in fact, label their goods as made in Israel. J Street would support, and we've called even, you know, under the Obama administration, we called for the enforcement of the rule. If you're getting a bottle of wine from a winery that sits on occupied territory, that is not in the state of Israel. Uh, and it shouldn't be sold in this country as a product of the state of Israel. To me, that's not a boycott. It's not a, uh, you know, an endorsement of the global BDS movement. But it is saying that folks like me who do not want to support uh, the economic enterprises of the settlement movement 
uh, should have a right to know where their bottle of wine comes from. And if they don't want to buy a bottle from the settlement, it shouldn't be labeled made in Israel. So, you know, that's a nuanced position, um, you know, recognizing the deep disagreements that I would have and the J Street has with the majority of the global BDS movement uh, because we support the right of the Jewish people to national self-determination. How would you describe, you know, for so many people, there's, you know, APAC and J Street, and it's as if they are on different planets, different solar systems, even though, of course, there's many, many things that you would agree upon. Um, both organizations describe themselves as uh, as Zionist pro-Israel organizations, different approaches, um, different, uh, certainly when it comes to policy, you know, sometimes uh, uh, wide gaps but there are all sorts of commonalities. What are some things, um, maybe going back to where we started, what are some things when you look at APAC that you really admire about um, the way they do their work and uh, around their mission? And what are some things that you see as you know, fundamental areas of disagreement? Um, I'm also just curious in terms of the way organizations speak to each other and work to what, with one another. You know, what are some opportunities that you've had or that you would hope to have to actually partner in certain ways, if that's even um, you know in the realm of possible? But first of all, what what are some things that that you admire and some things that um, that you're really opposed to, perhaps in terms of approach and uh, and mission? Right. No, it's a very reasonable question, and you know, I. I when I'm asked this, sometimes I, I draw the analogy to Democrats and Republicans in the United States, right? We're all Americans, uh, but, you know, by and large, Democrats and Republicans do disagree on fundamental values and approaches, you know, philosophically. Uh, and in order to get legislation passed, Democrats and Republicans in the past have always had to cooperate, right? In order to find compromise and set aside some of their differences to move something forward. Um, and you don't ask, you know, Democrats and Republicans to shed their identity and all become like one big happy political party. A lot of people say, well, why can't J Street folks just join APAC and be one big pro-Israel thing and disagree within it? You know, we have a very fundamental difference about what it means to be pro-Israel. Uh, APAC was founded in the 1950s uh, at a time when the Jewish community here in particular um, really needed to unify and provide as strong a voice as possible in Washington, D.C., uh, to reflect a desire to have the United States support the fledgling state of Israel from the serious threats that it faced. Uh, and there was a real mission and a real need for APEC. And it actually did its job unbelievably well. Uh, and it wrote a, a handbook on how you build an effective lobby. And so when I'm asked, what do I admire? It's kind of like with Netanyahu, where I admire his skill as a politician. Uh, and as I said, I'd nominate him for a Nobel Prize. Well, similarly, the playbook that APAC developed from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, amazing. Uh, you know, the way they built political power, they made themselves one of the top handful of lobbies in the entire country uh, on, you know, a, a rather obscure issue, uh, right? And somehow it became this powerhouse. So you have to admire the founders of APAC and the way that they went about their business and the relationships they developed with American politicians. It's it's really a case study in how to build power uh, and exercise it in a very uh, meaningful manner. Um, so I respect that deeply. Uh, I also think that the time when uh, the definition of being pro-Israel was you have to support whatever it is that the government of Israel is doing because you live here and they live there and you don't have a right to speak. I think that day is done. 
you know, and I and I think that that is not uh, the best way to be pro-Israel. It's it's not in the best interests of the state of Israel if it means giving a green light to annexation. Uh, it is not in the best interests of American foreign policy uh, to blindly follow uh, wherever an ally leads us. And frankly, most importantly, it's not in the best interests of the future of the American Jewish community. Because if we say that our identity as Jews requires us, if we're going to have a relationship with Israel, to follow whatever that country does, and, and we are not allowed to express our disagreements within the Jewish community, I think we're going to lose a lot of Jews, particularly young non-Orthodox Jews who are really going to walk away. Uh, and I think we run a real risk if that's the definition of pro-Israel. So J Street came along and said, our definition of pro-Israel is we support Israel's right to exist and to defend itself, and we want the United States to help with that. And uh, we think that to be pro-Israel, you don't have to agree uh, with everything the Israeli government does. And so I think that's a really fundamental uh, difference. And you know, it means that on many, many policy choices, while there is a right-wing government in Israel and a right-wing government in Washington, D.C., J Street's going to be in opposition and APAC's going to be in support. And that's a pretty you know, wide gap. It's hard to find a lot of common ground uh, between the two at the moment. Now, if we move to a Biden administration and perhaps one day a Gantz administration, and if Biden and Gantz are actually seeking peace and, and a resolution of the conflict, then maybe there'll be more common ground uh, between J Street and APAC. Um, I can only hope uh, that that day will come. So, Earlier, you mentioned your father, Yitzchak, and uh, and his relationship with Menachem Begin and where he stood uh, politically. And uh, and so much has changed um, since your father was active uh, and, and was part of these conversations. But if you could imagine a conversation with your dad today, what do you think are some things that he would look at you and say, oh, my son, how could you believe that? Or how could you embrace that? And what are some things that you think given what has changed in the world and given how you knew your father, he would, he would say, you know, I, I never thought I'd say this, son, but, you know, I agree with you about X or Y or Z. Do you ever imagine those conversations? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there's a, um, a generational difference, the life experience that we all have that really shapes our approach to the world. And my father grew up in, as I you know, mentioned earlier in this discussion, um, you know, he grew up in a time when there was one, a world war as he was, you know, zero to five years old, World War I. Uh, then there was a whole period of time of fighting with Arab neighbors. And, uh, you know, they, his, his grandfather passed away in his field, sleeping in his tent uh, to protect uh, his tent from being uh, attacked by marauding uh, you know, gangs from nearby villages. Um, he lost other cousins in, in violent incidents with the neighbors. Then he goes to Europe and, you know, tries to save Jews from the Nazis and then fights in the American army in World War II, actually. Comes back and he's fighting against uh, the British uh, and is on the Altamena when it's sunk by Ben-Gurion. Uh, you know, so his whole first 35 years is just one war and fight after another. Um, and his message to me about the world, uh, you know, is one in which everybody's trying to kill you, uh, you know, and you better just fight and you better defend yourself and take what you can get. And I understand, 
you know, having lived through what he lived through, experienced what he experienced, I can understand how you take that as your life lesson. Um, I don't have that as my experience and I don't have that as my life lesson. Um, he would call me as I think his allies do today, uh, naive, uh, and that I don't understand the world. Uh, and I would look at him and I look at these folks and I say to them, uh, what you're offering is not a future for our kids, uh, and our neighbor's kids and for their grandkids. Um, you know, we have to figure if we don't want to keep killing each other and see everybody dying, we've got to fit, find a different way. Um, and I don't think you can persuade, uh, my father and his allies of this. Um, but I do think that generationally, I see the kids of the commanders of the Irgun, uh, you know, the Tsipi Livnis and the Dan Meridors and the Ehud Olmerts, um, whose fathers were my father's comrades. Uh, and every single one of them uh, ended up exactly where I am uh, in their 60s and in their 70s now. Um, you know, they have absolutely impeccable Zionist credentials. They want nothing but a good and safe and secure future for the state of Israel and absolutely recognize that there has to be compromise. And it's generational. They didn't have to fight. They didn't have to sleep in the fields. They didn't have to lose cousins. They didn't have to do all the things that our parents did. Um, and, you know, I hope that in this generation, uh, you know, we still have time in this generation to try to resolve this conflict. I see that similarly on the Palestinian side, by the way, uh, with my um, interlocutors who were in their 60s and 70s, um, who also are tired of the fight. Uh, you know, their kids don't want to talk anymore. They're tired of diplomacy. They don't think that you can get what you want out of diplomacy. And so generationally, the opportunity for Jews and for Israel uh, lies in this generation, not waiting another generation. Because I think then we're up to a generation that thinks the only way to get what it wants is one state and equal rights. And I think we're in a completely different uh, world. And that's why the urgency to me is now uh, in this generation, um, because I think we have the opportunity to build on the life we've had and the lessons we've learned. That's really helpful. And, uh, and I think such a sensitive way of understanding the way different people experience different things. And obviously it doesn't fit for everybody because there are people in, in each generation, you know, who might be outliers, but, but really helping to understand that. What I want to conclude with is um, just maybe something that gives you a sense of hope. Uh, there's so many things in the world right now, there's a lot of darkness. And certainly when we think about um, uh, the conflict in, in Israel and Palestine, when we think about um, the deep divisions uh, in our own country and, uh, and, and the way that Jews talk about each other and to each other, some of the things that we've referenced, uh, even when we disagree um, with, with one another deeply, you know, that, that lack of kavod. So there's so much darkness, but what's something that gives you real hope, something that um, helps you to wake up in the morning with, uh, with a sense of urgency and mission? Well, I think hope is not just a passive condition. Uh, you know, I always say to folks involved in J Street, and I think, by the way, this is a, you know, set of language that I've seen in Barack Obama, I've seen it from Bill Clinton, um, you know, you have to make hope. Uh, you have to be the agent of change. Um, and what gives me hope is a belief that together we actually can bend uh, the arc of history, uh, that we really can make a difference. Um, I woke up on the morning after Donald Trump was elected in 2016, and I said to our team, 
Um, you know, our mission for the next four years uh, is to get ready for the next chance we have to change course. Uh, you know, this is a, a tragic turn of events uh, for this country and for the world. And little did we know just how tragic it was going to turn out to be. Um, but the only way that there's hope is if you make it. And I said, not only do I think we can beat him in 2020 and, and, and change course, but I think the 2020s can be one of the greatest progressive decades uh, of American history. Uh, you know, coming out of the uh, tragedy of the Depression, um, you know, we got the New Deal uh, and we got incredible progressive advances. And coming out of World War II, there were investments in the country and investments in people uh, that really laid the groundwork for 70 years of peace and prosperity. And I think similarly, um, the 2020s can be a time when the momentum forward, uh, having experienced what we've all just been through, um, I, I think we can actually build a really, really better future and address these critical problems that we have. So my hope lies uh, in what we can do together uh, to change course and to build a better future. Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for your time. I appreciate how busy you are and, and what a difficult uh, time it is to, to carve out these moments for these conversations. But I'm deeply grateful to you. And I just want to wish you a Chag Sameach. We're recording this on Erev Shavuot. I hope you have a wonderful Shavuot holiday and, uh, and that you stay healthy and whole. Thank you so much. Chag Sameach to you. Thank you for this opportunity and look forward to doing it uh, again at some point. Well, that's the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for tuning in. I know there's lots of other things you could be doing right now, lots of other things you could be listening to, but you've chosen to spend some time with me, and I'm grateful to you for that. Also grateful to the entire team for putting the podcast together, our producer, Jeremy Goldstein, our editor, Raz Husseini. Our theme music was composed by David Cates and myself and includes a vocal by Josh Goldberg. Tell a friend about the podcast. Who knows? They might enjoy it as well. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Take care of yourself. Be safe. Be healthy. And remember, don't touch your face.